Lost Highway, a 21st century noir horror film, a graphic investigation into parallel identity crises, a world where time is dangerously out of control, a terrifying ride down the Lost Highway. David Lynch, June 21st, 
Tim, I love the way you you presented the article. You kind of dove right into the end of the film, which I was shocked, but I kind of liked the structure. It was a really well-written article. So it's actually part of this, an ongoing series we do called On the Scene. You know, go into something, take a specific scene out of it and really dive deep into that and see, you know, what does this mean? What's cool about it? So I really focused on the climax is kind of where you get Pete's story and then you get, you know, Fred's story from earlier and it's all kind of coming together it really is this like it's the dream so like mm-hmm. there's you know, the initial section then there's this you know as lynch calls it an extended fugue state where you know fred becomes pete and then he goes off on pete's life it really collapses here and it's actually it's similar to um you remember mulholland drive club silencio yeah sort of like where you know the floor gets pulled out from under you and all of a sudden you're, you know, you're back in the real world, but you get this really, really breathtakingly beautiful scene where it happens, where, you know, they're out in the desert and, you know, making love in the sand, you know, in the lights of a vintage Ford. It's, it's a very, this is cinema moment. Yeah. The name of your article is Lost Highway, A Siren Song Through the Dying Dream. And I like that you kind of touched on about the siren song. That's one of one of the many, many interesting stories in, you know, Lynch canon. Um, He actually wanted it for the prom scene in Blue Velvet, uh, but they couldn't get the rights. I believe it was one of his producers who said what amounted to make your own. So then he went to Angelo Badalamenti, very beginning of their collaboration. And he's like, he said, I want this. So then Badalamenti went to uh, Julie Cruz, who he had known from his New York theater days. And that collaboration led to Mysteries of Love, which was first collaboration between the three of them. And it would lead to the music of Twin Peaks. For the song wise, it's like it's coming full circle, mm. you know, from, you know, he wanted it from the beginning, couldn't get it inspired all it's finally we're coming around to, you know, the later end of his filmography and we finally get it getting the lost highway itself. It's a film about desire, very mm. much so. It's almost like there's this sense where, you know, you finally get what you desire and you can only have it for a moment and then gone then it's kind of goes into the ether and it's the case for you know pete wanting alice fred wanting to not have killed his wife and (laughs) not wanting to be that person and you know you get it for a moment or you think you get it and then go on maya it was five years ago you were on our show february 10th 2017 to talk about lost highway the 20th anniversary so it was the 20th anniversary we had you on and i I feel like your appreciation for this movie has grown in the last five years yes definitely in fact i think that that show is one of my favorites i was ever did with you guys because it was at the time i was really uh rediscovering the movie and i had written something about the 20th anniversary so i was very excited to discuss it and i felt like I know that you can interpret it in a lot of different ways, but I felt like for me, I was having a really good understanding of the film for the first time around that period of time. So that was a great talk. Yeah. Yeah. And it wasn't that long ago that we did Lynch Madness and we had to find the best, (laughs) decide on the best, (laughs) the best movie that Lynch has ever made. And I feel like I've always believed it was Lost Highway. And I was somehow, Maya, I got on my side and it won (laughs) best movie. 
It is. That was for you, Ben, but it is. Thank you. Thank you. I, I, I don't know if it's true, but I, I appreciate you doing that for me. And it was awesome. Well, they're all the best Lynch movies. They are something else. Yeah. <laughs> going back to this, I kept on wondering, like, what is it about this film that... I mean, there's many reasons that it speaks to me being my favorite, but I was saying to this to Brian before we got on the show, one of the things is that it it almost speaks to my generation. Like, I feel like the 90s was was big for me, high school and college, more like these movies that you anything was possible and you, it was always out there and you never knew. And then the music. The music in that, I could pull up the soundtrack now, but I could tell you off the top of my head, there's, you know, there's Lou Reed, there's the Pumpkins, there's Marilyn Manson. Yeah. There's, you know, this mortal coil, greatest band of all time. <laughs> David Bowie, I'm deranged. Oh, yeah, yeah. Bowie. How, how do I leave out Bowie? Yeah. My God. Yeah. It's very modern. I think it's almost like a very modern soundtrack for a Lynch film, too. Yeah. It's very of its time. Well, yeah, it's, it's very of its you know, time. Yeah, you've got tracks, and, you know, Trent Reznor did a couple original tracks, and then you still have those few tracks from Battle Lamenti. So, music wise, it's kind of a. It's it's a potpourri. And Trent Reznor was the producer, I mean, audio producer for this as well. So, I mean, he was kind of one collaborating and making sure all the music came together for for this film. Well, I'd mm -hmm. love to share the, our first unseen scene. The Madison House, dining room, day. Renee is seated at the dining room table, coffee cup and grapefruit in front of her. She is wearing glasses, reading a book. Fred enters and sees Renee, who does not look up or acknowledge him. Fred goes into the kitchen, which is just off the dining room. He comes back into the dining room with a cup of coffee and sits down with it opposite Renee. He lights up a cigarette, sips his coffee, and looks at her. Good book, huh? Renee looks up. Huh? Oh, yeah, it is. Same one you were reading the other night? What night? When you didn't come to the club? Oh, uh, yeah. No, this is a different one. I called, you know. Called? When? From the club. You didn't answer. <sighs> I must have fallen asleep. I was asleep when you got home, wasn't I? You were asleep when I got home, yes. Renee goes back to her book. Fred sips his coffee and smokes. Renee, without looking up... I told you you could wake me up if you wanted to. Renee looks up at him now, takes off her glasses, and stares at him. Close up of Fred's face, a disturbed expression. Renee seems about to say something more, but stops, puts her glasses back on, and resumes reading. I thought it was interesting that she was wearing glasses, and they mm. talked about it a couple times, because she's so glammed up in the movie in every scene. Mm. you know for being in the house anyway uh, that I thought that was interesting like maybe they originally were going to have her be a little more subdued but then they glammed her up a little bit more when they actually shot the film and also the disturbed expression that they talk about um, was interesting because they mentioned that a few times in future scenes and it seemed like that was more present in these deleted scenes than we see in the actual film. Clearly there's some kind of tension maybe even uh, trust in this relationship Mm -hmm. Right. It really speaks to this facade that the two of them put up, you know, the facade of happiness to each other and the facade of happiness to, you know, the outside world. And in the Madison house, they do have the red curtains, which, you know, I've been I've been rewatching a lot of Lynch lately and they show up everywhere. 
And whenever they show up in one of Lynch's films, they always seem tied to either some sort of performance or some sort of facade that somebody's mm. putting on. Aaron did great. I want I, you guys said everything, but I want to just say that Aaron, he's a good friend. It is fun to see, like, uh, yeah, the unseen players and yeah. and see, see what roles they want to play. And yeah, Aaron was great. He was awesome. Yeah. The Madison House, stairwell, living room, day. Fred is standing in the living room, looking in the direction of the stairwell. We hear someone's steps coming up the stairs. It's Renee who eventually comes into view. She is holding another manila envelope. She arrives at the top step. She and Fred lock eyes. Fred takes the envelope, opens it and pulls out a third videotape without saying anything. Fred takes the tape to the VCR. He inserts it very carefully, slowly. He hits play, turns on the television, and he and Renee sit down on the couch together and begin to watch with great apprehension. Again, we begin with a wide shot, and then the TV monitor fills the screen. We see the interior of the house at night. The camera glides looking down from a high angle along the hallway and into the bedroom where Fred and Renee are sleeping. Again, the droning sound plays throughout. In the bedroom where Fred and Renee are seen sleeping, Suddenly, Fred, on the tape, slowly awakens as the camera holds on him. He rises and turns unnaturally in the bed, as if drawn up by his awareness of some strange presence in the room. He comes to a sitting position, his head straining upwards, looking in the direction of the camera. At this point, the videotape image turns to snow. The Madison house, living room, day. Fred and Renee are on the couch. The TV remains on, showing snow. Renee is very upset, crying. What the hell is going on? I wish I knew. Fred reaches over and tentatively takes Renee's hand in his. She trembles, allows him to touch her but otherwise does not respond. Suddenly she jumps with fright. What was that? What? On the tape. There was something else on the tape. Fred gets up and rewinds it, passing an image. There. Play it. Fred runs the tape forward. We see snow then a half-second-long, medium shot of Fred on his knees near the bedroom wall on Renee's side of the bed. He's looking directly at the camera, his face a ghastly grimace, contorted. His eyes are wide with horror. Fred runs it back again and freezes the tape there on his tormented image. This image fills the screen. He and Renee stare at it. The Madison house, living room, day. The detectives, with Fred and Renee, are seated on chairs on the couch. The three videotapes in their manila envelopes are stacked on a coffee table in the centre. You don't remember being awakened? It looks like you were aware of someone. Or, uh, something. No, I don't remember anything. It looks like I... but... I don't remember. Why would anyone do something like this? Has anyone made any threats to either of you recently? Or not so recently? No, not to me. Al, Ed, and Fred all look at Renee. I... No. No. No threats. We'll take the tapes with us, if that's all right with you. Ed looks at Fred, then Renee, both of whom nod their agreement. We'll see that the patrol of the house is doubled. I don't know if I want to stay here. I don't feel safe. Where would you feel safe? I don't know. Maybe a hotel? Ed and Al are watching this exchange between Fred and Renee with keen interest. 
There is a strained silence between them. Did you use the alarm system since we were here last? The first night? Not the last two. Why not? Fred shrugs. I forgot. Anyway, I hate the idea of acting paranoid. Acting paranoid? Someone is in our house while we're sleeping. Filming us. And you don't want to act paranoid? I thought you set the alarm. Fred gets up, lights a cigarette, paces. I'll make sure the alarm is set from now on. But that doesn't solve the problem. Who is doing this? And why? Ed and Al rise from their chairs. Ed picks up the envelopes. We'll find out, Mrs. Madison. Renee stands with the detectives. Fred stands apart, his expression pained and bewildered. Great job. They did such a great job. They, they're, they're awesome. I mean, all of them. This is just an additional finding of a tape, which I think is good to take out, maybe, because like, how many times do we have to go to the doorstep and get out of the tape? I mean, this would have been a third time. I, I agree with you, Ben. In a way, I think it's kind of an awesome scene because you have, they're describing him sitting up on the bed and looking at the camera. It's almost like he's possessed or he's, you know, mm. he's Linda Blair or something like that. But I, I feel... Um, Maybe it would have been too much in the film seeing that over and over and over again. But it does seem like they were trying to establish uh, this pattern of a change in Fred. Yeah. 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 Kind of scary and cool in a way. I may be reaching, but here's some things that I observed. They're talking about, has anybody threatened uh, you? And, you know, Fred saying, uh, I don't remember anybody threatening me. And then they go to look at Renee and she's, I, no, no, no one's threatened me. And mm. she's saying about not being safe in her own home. And it's like, maybe it's not <laughs> an outside force. Maybe it is Fred. Maybe Fred is an abusive person. Like, maybe we, we don't see that, but maybe he really is very abusive. She feels, you know, abused in this house with Fred. At the end, she, she gets closer to the police. Renee stands with the detectives. Fred stands apart. So it's yeah. like, she's almost like, I need protection. <laughs> she's like in her own ways trying to tell the police, I need to get out of this relationship. <laughs> I agree with you. I think there's yeah. definitely an undercurrent of, you know, spousal abuse a little bit in this film, obviously with what he does. But I'm wondering who do you guys think is the one sending the tapes? I mean, I know who I think it is, but what do you guys think? I mean, I think it's gotta be Fred. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, right? I mean, it's like, I guess because I believe it's only Fred doing all this. Yes, I think so, too. I think it's all, it's all him. Hmm. Like Leland Parnell with Twin Peaks, I felt like you want to blame the devil. You want to blame somebody else for your actions. And it's like he wants to blame the mystery man or some other yeah. entity as though yeah. the devil made me do this. You know, like. the <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Something that I have in my little notes section that I took when I was recently rewatching it was, you know, this idea of loss of control and listening to this, it, you know, you wonder, is it loss of control or is it trying to sort of shift blame and say, I couldn't control myself? Is it, mm -hmm. you know, is loss of control portrayed as a bad thing or something that Fred might want in a yeah. weird way? Mm -hmm. Also here, Fred says, where would you feel safe? And Renee says, I don't know, maybe a hotel. And it's just funny because we, the hotel, a hotel comes up at the end of the movie and some of yes. that. So yeah. um, she's using it. She's saying just a place to feel safe. Fred could reinterpret that. It's like, oh, that's where you want to go have sex with some strangers. <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> but you do wonder if like, if, if the theory I believe is that Fred is guilty of all this and he's kind of created these other world and he hears Renee and maybe when he creates this world of Pete, 
he creates the world of the hotel. City morgue, night. Renee's corpse on a slab is rolled into an examining room by an attendant. The entrance of the body is shown reflected in a chrome-framed mirror that juts out from a tile wall. The attendant prepares for the impending autopsy, laying out a rack of instruments, positioning the corpse. As he is doing these things, the medical examiner enters, accompanied by his girlfriend. The Emmy is dressed formally in a tuxedo. The young woman is wearing a slinky dress with a fur wrap, pearls, spike heels. The couple is close. She has an arm through his, and she laughs nervously. He is smoking a cigarette. Hi, Doc. Working late tonight, huh? Party at the mayor's house, George. This is his daughter, Joyce. Howdy, Joyce. Howdy, George. The attendant uncovers the body. Individual parts are wrapped like packages from a butcher's shop and labeled L-arm, head, R-breast, misspelled. Emmy looks at the packages. Mmm, just like Christmas. He begins to unwrap them. I don't know if I can watch this. The Emmy tosses his cigarette down on the floor. Leave any time you want, lover. I won't take it personally. Emmy unwraps the packaged body parts. Joyce's high heels enter the frame around the drain. She is stepping nervously like a spooked horse. The clatter of her heels is very loud. We hear the Emmy chuckle. <laughs> easy, girl, easy. You talking to me or her? A corpse can tell you plenty, Joyce. Such a creepy scene. <laughs> Who's this guy? Right, we recently did Ronnie, Ronnie Rocket. Rocket. That's yeah, what I thought. Too. I know. Lynch did a script for a film that he never made and stuff like that. And they had these characters putting together a, a, a person, a body, and stuff like that. And it, it just reminded me of that. But this is this this doesn't do anything for the film. I don't no. I, it's a comedy yeah. bit, I guess, but it doesn't add anything to it. Oh, I got cut. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Probably it, it, for the better. Yeah. yeah. I thought of Ronnie Rocket. I thought thought of uh Deborah and one of Bob or Dan. It's like one of those weird Lynch things that he'll put in all his movies. Eventually he'll get to do it. it just doesn't work here. <laughs> right. True. Courtroom day. Have you reached a verdict? Yes, we have, Your Honor. Please hand it to the bailiff. The bailiff goes to the foreman, takes the paper from her, then takes it to the judge. The judge opens it and reads it to himself, then hands it back to the bailiff, who returns it to the foreman. And what is your verdict? We, the jury, find the defendant guilty of murder in the first degree. Fred faints. Fred is lifted up by his attorney and guards in attendance. Fred revives slightly. Fred Madison, the jury having found you guilty of murder in the first degree, it is my order that on a date to be determined, you be put to death in the electric chair. Fred's eyes roll open as he cranes his neck around and upwards, looking at the video camera high on the wall of the courtroom pointing down on him. It's interesting that they note that he faints during this because kind of builds into the sense of this wasn't me i didn't do this uh, uh you know right it was the one-armed man yeah yeah <laughs> right. uh, the camera is like a trigger sort of he doesn't own a video camera he likes to i like to remember things my own way what do you mean by that how i remembered them 
not necessarily the way they happened. And so when you have it documented and you have it, it, it there's no way you can, well, we live in an age, maybe we can somehow <laughs> stretch the truth. But for the most part, when you have something recorded, that is the truth. I mean, that is, I mean, there's no way to get around it. O.J. Simpson was a big thing. Lynch loved watching all of the, the media of that whole thing from the Bronco, run, you know, on the highway, running away from the police to the whole thing of like, could somebody actually kill his, you know, I think his ex-wife and stuff like that. But yeah. but it seems like it was, Lawson was loosely based on the O.J. Simpson case. And that was, I mean, when you think about it, that case was one of the first cases I can remember really that had video cameras in the courtroom and was live like every day <laughs> watching the case. And It was, it was um, like a TV show. Yeah. It was reality yeah. TV at its finest. I believe I read that Lynch said something of how it was, it was fascinating how during all this, you know, OJ was just kind of, he was smiling, he was friendly. And that led him down this idea of, you know, what, what would it be like if you were to do something like this? How could you go on living? When OJ was brought home, the first thing he said to the media was, I'm going to help find the killer. <laughs> and then a week later, he's playing golf. Right. Yeah. And then he wrote a book called If I Had Done It or something like that. And yeah. If I, like, I Did It. If yeah. I Did It. And then you're like, what? <laughs> what is going on? If the, the glove does not fit, you must acquit. You must acquit. Yeah. <laughs> and the Oscar goes to OJ Simpson. Something from uh, Catching the Big Fish. It's, uh, he, you know, he says, what struck me about OJ Simpson was that he was able to smile and laugh. You know, mm. he was able to go golfing with seemingly very few problems about the whole thing. And mm. I wondered how, if a person did these deeds, he could go on living. And then he gets into, you know, fugue states. And it's interesting. How does someone shut that yeah. part of their brain off? And, yeah. yeah. That's what Fred is, maybe. Like, he's just. He, he disassociates. Yeah. And that's what the mystery man is, I guess. Yeah. yeah. I like yeah. that. Yeah. I like that a lot. Lingerie shop day. Marion and Raquel, two exquisite young women, are looking over the merchandise. Did you see that about the guy who chopped his wife into a million pieces? How could I miss it? The TV won't quit with that stuff. They're going to cook him. Andy's from Utah. He says there you have a choice. You can die by hanging or by firing squad. Which would you choose? Marion holds up a black teddy to her body. Andy would go for this, don't you think? Firing squad, definitely. Do they aim for the head or for the heart? The heart, I guess. I wouldn't. The brain would know what's going on. Your heart would be ripped open trying to pump blood, blood pouring into the chest cavity. Savage pain, Marion. Raquel takes a red teddy and holds it up to her chest. Oh, that's hot. So, you'd rather be hung, huh? <laughs> Absolutely. Soon as your neck snaps, you black out. It might take a while for the body to die, but you wouldn't feel it. Marion reaches for a pair of panties with a hole in the crotch. You might be right, Raquel. Marion sticks a finger through the hole in the panties and wiggles it. The girls giggle. Raquel sees Andy walking into the store. He is sneaking up behind Marion and motions with a finger to his lips to Raquel not to say anything. When Andy gets directly behind Marion, he puts his hands over her eyes. Guess who? I think it's best, this was best left out of the movie. Uh, it it yeah. reads a little crude. Um, yeah. Two men wrote this script and like, I think sometimes they write these things and they're like, yeah. oh, we're going to be so funny about how how we're going to write these women and stuff like that. And it's just, <laughs> Obviously on the surface, yeah, I, I agree with what you're saying, Ben. Um, 
But the other thought is it's almost commentary on our society and right. I mean, we're so far removed from the OJ trial where we've been through a lot more, but how casually we can be talking about mundane things, but someone's life is on being broadcast on television. Someone was murdered. Two people were murdered. One person, their trial is broadcasted everywhere. And people during that time, we were having conversations, not about panties, but we're, we're making jokes about Cato. But at the same time, real people died. You know what I'm saying? So it became like something part of our culture. Our casual conversation was about OJ. And it was just, it's, it's, it's entertainment. All of a sudden became entertainment, even though people lost to people they loved. So it was, I see it kind of that way, like commentary on the time. It is too crude. I feel like mm-hmm. it could have been better. Yeah, because they're just they're, you know, casually at the clothing store going into the, you know, the grisly details of how to execute people. Yes. It's, yeah. It's weird. It is weird. And I mean, I remember like I was in high school when oh, the, all, all the OJ stuff happened. And I remember I watched late night stuff. They're making jokes. And mm. then you, you hear your parents or you go to school and people are talking about aspects of this funny or joking or talking about this guy should oj he did it he's guilty he should go you know like it's just weird it just became like i don't know stranger things do you you think partly because it was a celebrity it was oj he was um he did comedy movies and of course he was a football star and so it was kind of like oh it's it was okay because he was a celebrity right right but Yeah. yeah i mean murder for entertainment what I got in this scene was really about the execution. Like a few times, I think in the movie, but also in, in the deleted scenes here that talking about executing. And of course that's, you know, uh, that is what Fred is. Fred is in, in prison and he's going to be at some point executed for killing his wife. Prison, Fred's cell, night. Fred sits on the edge of his bed, listening as sounds of the prisoners builds. He's shaking. Two guards are standing at the guard station. Here he comes. Several of the men in suits, along with several guards, a clergyman, and a prisoner in the middle of the group, enter the hallway. They proceed past the guard station, down the hall. As the procession files by, death row inmates come to their doors and talk to the prisoner. Hey, see you soon, Sammy. Don't think taking a jolt is going to get you out of paying me back the 20 you owe me. Don't take it personal, pal. Un fuerte abrazo, amigo. As the men march down the hallway, they pass Fred's cell. His window panel is empty. The camera stops on Fred's cell door as we hear other prisoners talking to the inmate on his way to the electric chair. Hang in there, honey. Keep an eye out for me, Sammy G. Fred sits on his bed, listening fearfully. Sean, you got big stones, bro! The prisoner is strapped into the electric chair. Behind a glass partition, witnesses are seated. One of the men in suits, the warden goes to a telephone on the wall and stands with his hand on the receiver. He picks it up. Line check. Okay. The warden hangs up the telephone and stays next to it. We see one of the condemned man's wrists being clamped with an electrical device. The other wrist is clamped. A metal halo is placed around the condemned man's head. A large electrical cable leads off from the halo. Electrically conductive ointment is smeared around the areas where the clamps have been placed. The clergyman moves closer to the condemned man, continuing to give the man his last rites. When he is finished, he nods to the warden. 
the warden approaches the condemned man. Any final words, Sam? The condemned man shakes his head no. The warden and the others clear the room, and the doors are locked. The executioner steps into place near a huge lever. He looks to the warden. The witnesses sit in silent anticipation. The hands of the clock on the wall have moved past midnight. The warden takes one last look through the window at the condemned man, then nods to the executioner. Fred sits frozen at the edge of his bed. A distant but loud electrical hum begins. Fred's head jerks upward to the light on his ceiling. It is dimmed almost to nothing. Fred sits in the humming darkness. I think the idea to have this scene was that this is what Fred would go through when it's his time to be executed. Mm-hmm. Do we need it? I don't think we need it. I don't think I think it takes away from the rest of the story. It builds tension, but yeah, it's like almost too much. Prison. Fred's cell. Night. Fred is still curled on the floor, but spasms begin to rock his body. He goes into convulsions. Blood gushes from his nostrils. His head is badly swollen. Fred vomits repeatedly and drags around in his mess. Fred turns, straining upward as we've seen him do before. His face and head are hideously deformed. Fred brings his shaking, tortured hand to his forehead. He pulls his hand down across his face, squeezing it as it goes. As his hand passes over his face, Fred's features are removed, leaving a blank white mass with eye sockets. We move into the eye sockets and beyond. Two-lane highway, night. We see a clean, moving POV illuminated by headlights. We are floating down an old two-lane highway through a desolate desert landscape. This gliding, eerie POV continues until the headlights illuminate a figure standing at the side of the road. This figure is a man, Pete Dayton. Pete turns unsettled as he looks directly at us. As we move closer to him, the ghost image of a house appears behind Pete. There is a girl, Sheila, standing on the lawn in front of the house. She is afraid and is trying to communicate with Pete. Pete doesn't seem to hear her and continues to stare directly at us. Now Pete seems to move toward us as we move toward him. His head fills the screen. Prison. Fred's cell. Night. Fred's blank face begins to contort and take on the appearance, feature by feature, of Pete Dayton. Fred Madison is becoming Pete Dayton. That's not completely a deleted scene, right? You see the highway and... We and... see Sheila on the lawn, I think. Right. Yeah. yeah. I think what interests me about this was that you're kind of seeing metamorphosis or you're seeing the idea of his face actually changing. And mm-hmm. it's a little, at least in the description of it, it's a more of like he actually is becoming it. And I don't think, I think, I feel like in the movie, it's just, it almost like Fred disappears and Pete takes the place of him. Like here it's seemed to be clearly saying no, yeah 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 yeah. on the nose yeah and i i like it i like it better as it was as it was in the movie because it's kind of up in the air whereas here it's more explicit which kind of takes away your room to interpret things yeah Mm -hmm. and talking about interpretation so i mean getting getting into my interpretation i really I, I believe there is no Pete. I believe there's no Pete's world. I really do believe it's just Fred. Fred killed his wife. And he, 
and I don't even know if his wife really did cheat on him or if, if she was if she was in movies or any of that stuff. I think he was a very jealous person. I think he felt incompetent and and he felt like she didn't love him. And he was like, man, if I was a younger person, maybe she would love me. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like if I could recreate myself. Yeah. I, and that's what I feel like he did. He's in, He's got all this time before he's going to die. And he's decided I, I'm going to dream about what if I was somebody else. And then would I get the girl? And the, so we get that whole story of like he he meets Alice Renee. And, and this time he's going to get her because yeah. mm-hmm. he's a better man, I guess. I agree with that, but sometimes I think she may have been having an affair. Yeah. And when he becomes Pete, he sort of envisions her as being forced to have a relationship with Mr. Eddie yeah. instead of maybe wanting another man, right. which I think fed his insecurities maybe. So I think that you could interpret it either way, but I definitely think Pete is, is all in Fred's head. Yeah. Yeah. I also wonder if, you know, we've talked about Mr. Man is like the devil that made me do it. I do wonder if Mr. Eddie is also Fred. Like, I wonder if that's like another side of his violent side of like, he believes in like obeying the rules of the, of the car, you know, the car, <laughs> the highway, whatever like that. And like, maybe there's oh, man. anger that there's these outbursts that he has and stuff like that. And he feels justified as if he creates a Mr. Eddie character. Mm, that's a good point. I want you to get a fucking driver's manual. I want you to study that motherfucker. And I want you to obey the goddamn rules. 50,000 people were killed on the highway last year because of fucking assholes like you. That that scene with the car is, it's a very funny scene. Yeah. Because he gets out of the car and he's yelling all these things and you're listening to what he's saying and you're like, I kind of agree with you. You're saying some, <laughs> what are very reasonable you know things about car safe car and driving safety but you've done it after you've smashed a guy's window open dragged him out and held are holding a gun to his head (laughs) i see that scene and i almost wonder because you know we know lynch goes into uh meditation because he has anger problems i'm sure and um, you're you're putting the two together he's never said he has had anger problems i know i'm speculating speculation (laughs) speculation fucking a man it drives me nuts who gives a fucking shit how long a scene is? But we, we've we seen Dumbland, and it was very, like, letting all this aggression out. And there's, like, a whole cartoon about, like, because he lives in L.A. or whatever, and the traffic noises. And mm. he's just yelling and just being, like, you know, going off about people making too much noise, the cars and everything. And it's it reminds me of that. It reminds me of just something that Lynch needed to get out. And he did it. Yeah. (laughs) Great. But I think we all feel frustration on the road sometimes. But of course, we never go to the lengths that he would go to drag somebody out and beat them up and stuff like that. But I think we all can feel frustration sometimes that, hey, we're all on this road together. Can we be respectful of each other? Mm -hmm. That's great. It's classic. Yeah. Isn't there a story behind that, though, where there was some sort of road altercation that they speculated maybe fueled that scene with Mr. Eddie? I, I feel like so. I've, I've heard that somewhere that there was some kind of incident with Lynch in the car and that you could extrapolate that maybe he used that, you know, as fuel for that scene. I don't know. I'll have I to believe it. I'll that up somewhere. Um, I don't know about a car, but there was uh, there was a story. Um, Robert Lockia, who was Mr. Eddie, 
um actually he he wanted to be frank in blue velvet and oh. um when he heard that dennis hopper had been cast uh logia went to just a profanity laden rant at lynch and that would you know that would become mr eddie's road rage scene oh. I'm, kind of, I'm kind of paraphrasing it from the wiki but i do remember reading about that when i was researching highway yeah i think what happened was he was waiting for, to see lynch like he he was made to wait and he got so i don't know how long let's say it was a half hour but it, he had to wait a, he felt he was waiting a long time for 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 lynch to see him to audition or something and then he he blew up and got angry, and I think Lynch always remembered that, and I almost like wrote the character for him <laughs> in some ways when it came to this part. At least that's that's what I remember. Prison media room day, a press conference is being held. Present are reporters, TV cameras, et al. The warden and Captain Henderson represent the prison. I have a statement to read. Fred Madison, an inmate being held on death row, has apparently has escaped an all points bulletin has been issued to authorities not only statewide but nationwide we are confident that he will be apprehended very soon no further details are available at this time thank you thank you very much warden nobody's ever escaped from death row before how did he get out the warden and captain henderson leave the room without answering prison long corridor day pete's parents bill and claire dayton escorted by a prison guard, are approaching the warden's office. The Daytons are a middle-aged San Fernando Valley couple. Bill Dayton is wearing a sport shirt with the short sleeves rolled up. His skin is leathery, tanned, and his thinning hair is slicked back in a ducktail. He's working-class, ex-biker. Claire Dayton was obviously a good-looking chick who's gone to seed from too much sun, cigarettes and booze. She retains the remnants of a good figure, but it's going fast. Claire is wearing sunglasses. Prison. Warden's office, day. The Daytons are ushered in by the guard. The warden is standing behind his desk. Dr Rogoff is standing to one side and next to him is Captain Henderson. The Daytons stand just inside the room for a moment before the warden extends his right hand. I'm Warden Clements. This is Captain Henderson and Dr Rogoff. Please sit down. Bill and Claire move the chairs in front of the desk and sit down. The warden, Dr. Rogoff and Captain Henderson all sit down. Mr. and Mrs. Dayton, as you were told over the phone, your son Peter is here. Claire Dayton removes her sunglasses. She and Bill wait. The warden is searching for words. He he was discovered this morning in a cell on death row. Bill and Claire look at each other, bewildered. A cell that was supposed to be occupied by an inmate named Fred Madison. The wife killer? Yes. How is this possible, Warden? The Warden shakes his head. Tell me, what was Peter's condition the last time you saw him? Bill and Claire look at each other again, briefly. His condition? What do you mean? His physical condition. Same as always. Pete takes care of himself. Bill and Claire look at each other once again. I saw him before he went to the garage, day before yesterday. He's a mechanic. Look, is he okay? Can we see him? The warden looks at Dr. Rogoff. He has a hematoma on his forehead and a condition called blepharitis. That's redness and swelling around the eyes. Was he in a fight? These conditions don't indicate a fight. But what is the cause then? And how did he get in that cell? He can't talk or won't. That doesn't sound like Pete. 
your son has experienced some sort of trauma, I'm afraid. We were hoping that the two of you could help explain the cause of the trauma and how he came to be here. You don't know Fred Madison? No, only what was in the news. Do you think Pete knows him? I wouldn't know how. You say you haven't seen your son since the day before yesterday. When he went to work, right. What about yesterday? He didn't come home. Sometimes he stays at a friend's. Any particular friends? A girl's, a buddy's, I don't know. He's his own man. He comes and goes as he pleases. I want to see him. Yes, and we need to talk to him if, if we can. Mel, let's get Peter in here. Dr. Rogoff leaves the room. While he's gone, nobody talks, increasing the tension. Dr. Rogoff returns with Pete Dayton, dressed in his own clothes, jeans, boots, sport shirt. Pete's forehead is lumpy and his eyes are red and swollen. He can walk, but unsteadily. Pete looks around the room, sees his parents. Claire jumps up. Pete? She and Dr. Rogoff help get Pete settled in a chair. Bill is taken aback at the sight of his son, but says nothing. Pete, can you tell us now anything? about this. Pete, what happened to you? Pete has a dazed look on his face. He starts to speak, then stops. It's okay. Take your time, honey. Pete's gaze drifts from his mother's face around the room and back to her face. Where am I? The warden and Captain Henderson look to Dr. Rogoff. You are in the state penitentiary. You were found in a cell on death row. My head hurts. Pete rubs his head like it's about to explode with pain. A man named Fred Madison was occupying that cell. He's missing. We're trying to find out how it is you were in there and not him. I don't know. Do you know Fred Madison? No. There is a silence in the room as Pete massages his throbbing temples. Warden, can we take him home? The warden looks at Dr. Rogoff. From a medical standpoint, I don't see why not. We need to find out what happened here. Have you made any charges against him? No. Then he's coming home with his mother and me. All right, but you see our predicament. Legally, we can't hold him, but he may be able to help us, perhaps later. For now, he's free to leave. Bill and Claire help Pete up and carefully escort him out of the warden's office. With a nod from the warden, the guard accompanies them out of the room. The warden, Captain Henderson, and Dr. Rogoff stand, but remain in the office. (laughs) You just gonna let him go? We'll get a tail put on him. Do you think the hematoma that Pete has is because of the electrocution that Fred was experiencing? Oh, I don't know. What is that? That's something the doctor brings up? Yeah, the doctor says something about he has a hematoma on his forehead. Oh, Oh, interesting. Just a thought. I like that. (laughs) I like that, yeah. 10-pin bowling alley, night. The bowling alley is divided into a game room area, a bar-restaurant area, and a bowling area. Pete and the group stroll into the bar and take a large booth. Music is playing loud. A waitress takes orders for drinks. Bowling pins clatter loudly in the distance. Sheila takes Pete by the arm and pulls him up to dance. The music is fast, but they dance slow. Why haven't you called me? Sorry, I... Sheila looks around and moves closer to Pete. She whispers urgently, worried. What's happening to you? What happened to your face? I don't know. What do you mean? You've been acting strange lately. Like the other night. What night? Last time I saw you. I don't remember. What happened that night? You sure weren't acting like the Pete Dayton I've always known. What do you mean? You were acting like a different person. Who else could I be? (laughs) 
I don't know. You still care about me? Sure. Sure I do. Sheila pushes her mouth on Pete's, and they kiss. Pete breaks away, looks at Sheila, seriously. What else about that night? You really don't remember? No. I told you. It was weird. What do you mean, Sheila? I don't want to talk about it. Sheila? No. I really don't want to talk about it. But I like this idea of the... Uh of this whole, like, you're a different person. Maybe this is hitting us over the head, and I feel like maybe that's it. Maybe as they were looking at the film, they said, okay, you have enough things sprinkled out to say that, you know, he's not right, and... Right. The narrator does a great job. He sounds like... kind of sounds like Robert Loggia to me. <laughs> <laughs> I know, Bill's awesome. Bill's great. Dayton House, night. Pete is sitting perched unsteadily on the very edge of his bed. He hears a succession of highly amplified sounds at intervals with eerie stretches of silence. Crickets in fractured cadence, a distant television, a fly buzzing slowly in the room, a moth's wings beating against light bulbs in the ceiling fixture, the washing of dishes. Pete's reaction to these sounds is one of petrified confusion. Underlying these sounds is a kind of unearthly, steady drone. Pete gets up off the bed unsteadily. He moves toward his bedroom door. As he moves, the amplified sounds shift. He can hear laughter. The laughter seems to be loud, but at the same time coming from people who are trying to contain the laughter, to hide it. Pete opens his door and peers out. Pete looks down the hall toward the living room. His mother and father have stopped laughing and are turned with guilty smiles in his direction. They are smoking a joint, passing it back and forth. They are not looking directly at him. They seem to be looking, but not seeing. Pete's parents do not see Pete. There is no one there, just an empty hallway. Pete's parents continue to stare, but then turn away toward each other. They start to laugh quietly again. Pete sees no one in the living room. It's empty. Pete turns from the hallway and comes back in his room, unsettled and confused. He can hear laughter coming from the living room. And that's uh, Robin. She, 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 the, the whole scene was just narration, but it's cool. I love Robin's take on it. Like at the point where she talks about the bee and then she kind of goes buzzing and stuff. It was a nice little touch that she did. Yeah, I mean, I really feel like this is reinforcing that Pete's world is not real. Like, right. Yeah. Pete, Pete's parents aren't real. He's not real. This is just mm -hmm. a made up world. Yeah. And the droning is like the electric chair or the... Oh, yeah. yeah. I like that very much. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, they talk about it in a lot of these scenes, and it's like a, you know, an it under. Humming, right? Yeah. I mean, yes. It's always there. Yeah. You know. I didn't put it together, though. I don't know why I didn't put it together, but you're right. And even in the movie, there is a lot of electricity humming sounds throughout the whole film. I just thought it was typical Lynch, you know, yeah. loves his hums yeah. and electricity noises, but that's a great point. Yeah. And and obviously it's not as pronounced. Um, but if you remember uh, the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre, when you first get in, you hear um, the generator going, mm -hmm. and you sort of get that sound throughout most of the movie, and it just establishes this tone of unease. And then 
you know, you get the actual chainsaw sounds mixed in. You can't tell which is which. Yeah. Yeah. It's actually pretty cool to think about it. I, you know, all the little nuggets that you can pull out of the movie to see how they were sort of putting it all together. Yeah. yeah. Van Nuys Boulevard, night. Pete rides up the boulevard with the cruisers. He spots V's car parked at tops. He pulls in beside V's car and shuts down the engine. The usual crowds at the drive-in, including Sheila. Pete goes up to V and Carl, says hello. He lights a cigarette, leans up against a seal pole supporting the awning above. V and Carl both notice Pete is in a bad mood. Sheila is over with her girlfriend. She hasn't seen Pete arrive. Suddenly, Sheila looks over in Pete's direction. She looks like she's seeing something, yet not seeing anything. She keeps looking, staring. She sees V, Carl, and a lot of people, but Pete is not there. Pete looks at Sheila. He's unsettled and confused by her staring, but not seeming to see him. He watches her turn away and take one of her girlfriend's hands, leading her out to dance to the loud music. Pete watches her dance. Suddenly, he can't see her. He thinks maybe she may be dancing on the other side of the building, out of view. He moves to look, and his head is struck by a violent pain. He grabs his head with his hand and leans forward. V grabs his arm. You okay, man? What? You okay? What's wrong? Pete looks up at V. He doesn't seem to recognize him. V's head is a featureless blur. Pete shakes his head, trying to drive out the pain. He looks over again for Sheila. He sees her there. Dancing with her girlfriend. Pete, you okay? Yeah. Pete stands back up against the post, turns to V, recognizing him. I'm okay. You okay? Sure, I'm okay. Some drunk guys move over to Sheila and her girlfriend. They cut in on the girls. The guy with Sheila puts his hand around her waist and pulls her against her will into a grind. She tries to push him away, but he holds on tighter, laughing with his buddy. V and Carl look at Pete as he pushes off the post. Pete crosses quickly to the man dancing with Sheila. He slams his fist into the man's nose, almost snapping the man's neck in the process. The man goes down, bleeding. Pete attacks the other man who is turning toward him, ready for a fight. He hits the man in the gut. The man's head goes down, and Pete brings his knee up, cracking the man's face. The man's torso flies up with Pete's knee, then continues on as the man falls to the floor. Pete picks him up, ready to hit him again, but the crowd pulls him off. Pete stands and turns, pulsating with anger. Sheila is there, beside him. Where'd you come from? I've been here. You were looking. Right at me. I was? Yeah. Sheila sinks into his arms. I didn't know you cared. Come on. Pete takes her to the Harley, and they blast off. The, kind of a broken record thing at this point, but, you know, Pete's world is not real. You know, none of this is real. You know, Sheila's there. She's not there. You know, this one person's face is featureless blur because your mind is trying to make it all up. And this is a theme that is present in a lot of Lost Highway, which is this sort of male fantasy where, you know, you're, you know, you're a younger guy and, you know, you get all the girls and, you know, you ride on a motorcycle and you use violence to solve all your problems. Mm. And, you know, you can be, you know, you're bigger and tougher than everyone else. Yeah. yeah. Toxic masculinity, male fantasy, yeah. male power fantasies. I think you nailed it with that. That's yeah. pretty much what this scene is. A lot of Highway does seem to 
deconstruct it a little bit because for all that you know in the end he doesn't you know he doesn't get the girl you'll never have me he doesn't get away you know and it all kind of collapses so mm. yeah I, it's funny because i think in most of lynch's films the guy does get the girl in the end doesn't he? in blue velvet i feel like he kind of gets the girl and yeah. Uh, even uh, wild at heart he gets the girl i mean lost highway and mulholland drive are kind of um similar themes in both of those films and maybe it was just a period of time for lynch when he was sort of attracted to that darker tale and one is sort of male perspective and the other is female so it's interesting yeah, hey. yeah. pete is on the phone there is a long silence pete can hear breathing we've met before haven't we Pete freezes. His mind is scrambling. I don't think so. Where was it that you think we've met? At your house. Don't you remember? No. No, I don't. We just killed a couple of people. What? Pete can hear Mr. Eddie laugh in the background. You heard me. We thought we'd come over and tell you about it. Pete is getting pale with fear. What's going on? Great question. In the East, the Far East, when a person is sentenced to death, they're sent to a place where they can't escape, never knowing when an executioner will step up behind them and fire a bullet into the back of their head. It could be days, weeks, or even years after the death sentence has been pronounced. This uncertainty adds an exquisite element of torture to the situation, don't you think? <laughs> It's been a pleasure talking to you. Pete can hear the phone being passed again. Pete, I just wanted to jump on and tell you I'm really glad you're doing okay. The phone goes dead and Pete sits, fearfully pondering his fate. This scene here is, to me, was what the film was all about. I mean, you have Fred who is stuck in prison and he knows he's going to be executed any day. And he, he, he goes to a world to escape as long as he can until that day comes. Yeah. It's about that. It's about this sort of inevitability of, you know, you never know, you know, you don't know when it's going to come, but it's going to, you know, it's going to come for you. You're going to die. The stress of that so much is that he he kind of has a mental breakdown and creates this other world and tries to, like, think that he can outrun it. Death. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think uh, it's all happening, like, in the moment he's dying or is it the night before? I know they gave him like a drug and he goes to sleep. I, I kind of think about that a lot. Like, is it just mm. the moment of death? It might be. There is one line the mystery man says, is we just killed a couple people, which is not in there. And I don't know what, maybe it was just a spook. I guess it was just a spook Pete to say, hey, we killed people. And you know what? We're going to kill you too when we come find you. Maybe it's maybe. like mystery man subconsciously telling killed Fred that he killed people. He killed Renee. Maybe he killed Mr. Eddie. Maya, that's a great point because I was looking at the script and you could interpret it saying we, Pete and the mystery man, yeah. just killed a couple people, right? It's like, yeah. It's like, yeah. Right. It could be him on the phone saying, hey, I want to remind you, you're not innocent. You're, you're part of the killing here. Yeah. Man. One in the same. One in the One same. <laughs> Desert, daybreak. You and me, mister. We can really out-ugly this some bitches, can't we? The mystery man unloads his pistol into Mr. Eddie slash Laurent, who jerks and dies in the dust. 
The mystery man then leans close to Fred and whispers in his ear. Fred is now holding the gun. He is standing alone. There is no mystery man. Fred turns to go back to the car. The Madison House, driveway, early morning. Fred drives up to his house in Mr. Eddie slash Laurent's Mercedes 600 Palma and stops in front. He gets out of the car, goes to the front door, and rings the doorbell. There is a beep sound. Fred into the intercom. Dick Laurent is dead. As Fred finishes this sentence, we see the cop car containing Ed and Al pull into the curb, just up the street from Fred and Renee's house. Fred turns and sees the cop car. He jumps in his car, fires it up, and peels out. The cops give chase. Desert highway, day. Fred is behind the wheel of his car. Behind him are the cops. Fred's face begins to change again, grotesquely contorting as he races into the vortex. His tormented scream blends with the howling siren of the police car, gaining on him. Well, that's pretty much a direct nod to O.J. Simpson, though, right? The famous Bronco chase. Yes. Yes. Yeah. You could see the inspiration clearly there. whole thing in the car and the police are coming and all of a sudden he's like, ah, he's screaming. And he seems like his face is changing. Is to me is when he's being electrocuted. Like that is like the final, that is it. Like... But in that scene, the movie sort of folds back on itself, right? Because it sort of starts at that point. Mr. Eddie is, is dead or Laurent. Dick Laurent. Dick Laurent, yeah. Yeah, and, and there is a Lynch, a David Lynch story. I think it might have been on the Lost Highway extras where Lynch talks about when he was a kid. Ben, you'll probably know the story better than I. But, uh, he, someone, there was a speaker or, or someone said something through his door or the, this intercom thing. And they said Dick Laurent. I, I don't know if that's exactly I actually think it's in his house. I think I think he was in a grown-up. I think he was an adult and somebody oh, just was he? he had a speaker system and somebody okay. right. Yeah, somebody just said, said Dick that, Laurent. And dead. he went to the window and there was nobody there because he said it was like an odd corner, just like the house in the movie. So you couldn't see the person leaving or going. So he to him it was just like this mystery person came, said the message to the wrong house. But it, that would spook me. Yeah. I got that message. Yeah. And then he made a whole movie about it. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe, like, you know, this is the one last chance to say it's not my fault and blame it on Dick Laurent. Say, uh, Dick Laurent forced, uh, you know, Renee Alice to do these terrible things and be involved in these films and, and act mm. this way. And if I yeah. kill him, then I, you know, I brought justice. And if I go to the intercom and let, Fred know who's in the house. <laughs> Everything's okay. I, I killed Dick Laurent. <laughs> you think yeah, it's no. a, a full circle sort of thing? So it's like he's kind of like made peace with it? Or maybe he's trying to make sense of it because he still doesn't really know that he killed her. I, I don't know. On some yeah. yeah. Well, doesn't, you know, doesn't know or doesn't want to process the fact that, mm-hmm. you know, he killed her and he's responsible for that. And I think a lot of that furniture that was in the movie was made by Lynch. Like he he did the woodwork and things like that. Yeah, yeah. that's awesome. We didn't we didn't talk about I Maya. I think you, I think we talked about this when you were on originally. How that furniture was like a clue that he's trying to remember things, and how the the furniture was oddly there was like not much detail to a lot of the furniture. When you re, would recall something, you don't remember all the detail. Hmm. Um, of every little thing yeah and in the movie when he 
looks into the mirror and, and the hallway gets all dark and it's kind of like that's when he changes and I think that's mm. right when he goes and kills her so yeah there was a lot of odd things about the layout of that house I guess it was all just a little bit wrong yeah. right it, it just like the chainsaw massacre thing you mentioned Tim it's the uneasiness that Lynch sets up visually and yeah. audio with his uh, audio he, he's really into audio and I think just discussing it today about the hum it makes me real want to watch this movie again and pay more attention to that sort of thing because it's probably stuff that's in our subconscious you know we're not noticing it right away yeah yes and you know talking about wanting to watch it again i mean i did just recently watch it but you know david lynch has has supposed to be putting out a new blu-ray of this and i've been waiting for years for this i actually there was another company that put out a blu-ray and Lynch was telling everybody, don't get this one because right. I'm putting out a, a I think he's, he went back to the print and was cleaning it up and it was going to be a really nice looking uh, film. And uh, I don't know, this would have been the time to do it. I mean, I guess we could still say even after this month, you know, it's the 25th anniversary, maybe before the end of the year, it'd be awesome if, if, we, if that could come out, but we'll have to see. But I think we're still working on it. I, yeah, and I think, um, wasn't it Criterion? I think um, they're uh, they're doing uh, Inland. Um, oh. They're finally doing a new blue area of Inland that's supposed to come out. Soon. How are they doing Inland Empire but not Lost Highway? <laughs> I, I don't know. But, you know this <laughs> pandemic is like, <laughs> maybe there's some copyrights though issues or something. Yeah, yeah. the music yeah. even you were saying some of those songs. I don't know. Oh yeah, maybe. Yeah. It yeah. was just the 10th. We just had the 10th anniversary of Inland Empire. So maybe they were trying to get that out for the 10th anniversary and missed that. Di- and so maybe we're, we're behind by a year. Maybe Inland will be this year and, you know, lost high yeah. next year. So who knows? Yeah. yeah that, and maybe they just want people to be able to, you know, watch Inland because <laughs> it's very hard to find. It is. Yeah. I mean, you can't uh, stream Lost Highway anywhere or a lot of Lynch's really? works. You, yeah, the Criterion channel has uh, a lot of, uh, you can stream a lot of Lynch's work. Oh, nice. But yeah, they yeah, don't yeah. have, I don't think they have Lost Highway. I think when Lost Highway, the new version comes out, the, the new Blu-ray, it's going to be Criterion. It's very sort of weird, but sort of almost brilliantly constructed. It's almost like you're going through like a fun house, like a hall of mirrors. You get, you know, reflections of reflections of reflections and, you know, uh, Pete's parents who are like, you know, you don't look well, what have you been up to? And then like five minutes later, the mystery man or Mr. Eddie is saying, you know, you look great. What have you been up to? And you just kind of get things. (laughs) Whiplash. Yeah. 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 Going all the way back to the beginning, the uh, the article I wrote, Song to the Siren, actually, it appears uh, three times through the film. It's at the climax where we all know it. Um, and then it's also in the first scene with Fred and Renee. And then it shows up, you know, when Fred has the vision of the cabin in oh. when he's sitting in his cell. And all three times is tied into desire, whether it's, you know, Pete wanting, you know, wanting to keep Alice or, you know, Fred wanting to satisfy Renee or, you know, in the jail cell, he's looking at this cabin. And as we later find out, it's where they're going to go to, you know, get the money to get out of town. And so it's really, you know, Fred wanting to escape. It's an escape fantasy too. Yeah. He's trying to, he's trying to get out of, you know, what he's done and, you know, not be executed for it, but he can't. 
Well, I want to thank Unseen Players for all, all their performances. I love, I mean, they've been working with us for uh, with Twin Peaks uh, when we were doing the Twin Peaks Unseen episodes there, or the, the scripts. And now it's great to have them back to do Lost Highway. And maybe, you know, Brian and I are somewhat retired, but we come back to from time to time. And I'm sure <laughs> this year we'll have at least one other, you know, script to look at maybe, and we, we could do something else. But Tim, how can people follow you and where can they find that article that you wrote on Lost Highway? So the best place to see everything that I do is uh, our home is my home site, uh, 25yearslater.com. Um, well, actually, it's going to be we're in the middle of rebranding. So it's going to be, you know, horror obsessive, film obsessive, TV, music, sports. Um, I'm mostly on I'm mostly on, you know, the film, the TV and the horror sites, but I do occasionally you know, I do occasionally dip into the music side for a couple of artists. Nice. And Maya, how can people follow you? And, are, and, and have you been writing any new articles? Well, I actually have something. I think it'll be out this week. Uh, I did with Courtney, actually, on, well, 25 years later, or uh, T, I guess TV Obsessive. It was probably what it will be on now. Nice. A little yeah. piece for Twin Peaks Month. But I do have a blog, uh, which is Twin Peaks Fanatic. And you can also find me on Twitter at uh, Twin Peaks Blog. Well, thank you so much. And uh, Brian, you know, uh, maybe we'll be back again, you know, in a month or two. You know, you never know. <laughs> you never know when we're going to show up. But well, it's fun to do have... this. It's fun to yeah. do this again. Yeah. yeah. Thank you, guys. <laughs> and if you have a comment, question, or theory about today's show, give us an email at twinpeaksunwrapped.gmail.com. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter. And you can find us on iTunes, Apple Music, um, or I, Apple Podcasts and Spotify and all those great places. And we'll see you in a month or two or three. <laughs> Barry Gifford, co-writer of Lost Highway. We were flying from San Francisco to New York and where I was going to catch a plane to Barcelona. I described this tour, you know, what we were dealing with, with the plot of, you know, the, of what became Lost Highway. Mm. And uh, I said, do you think this is feasible? Does this make sense to you in some way? And she said, oh, yes, what you're describing is a psychogenic fugue, huh. a fugue state where somebody, you know, is overwhelmed by a particular problem and develops this condition where they can only escape but within their own mind. Mm. So at the airport at JFK, I called Lynch told him what happened and that this woman had come up with the, you know, this analysis. 